Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It is such a pleasure and an honor to welcome back Gavin Menzies, the author of 1421, The Year China Discovered America, 1434, The Year a Magnificent Chinese Fleet Sailed to Italy and Ignited the Renaissance, and God help us all, ladies and gentlemen, he's now published his new book, The Lost Empire of Atlantis, History's Greatest Mystery Revealed. If you know anything about Gavin Menzies, you know that he is not afraid to question the existing story of our history, that he has a love for exploration and discovery. He's an adventurist as well. He has a keen ability to put puzzles together. He's kind of the Columbo and the Indiana Jones of revisionist history. He is not afraid to be wrong, which I admire because he has most important a love of learning. So many of us have been fascinated with the story and the mythology of Atlantis, and he's going to set the record straight today. Welcome back, Gavin. Well, thank you very much for inviting me back. It's very exciting to be once again on your program. I want to tell you that when I first heard about your original books, I thought, oh, my God, you know, he probably has a love of the Chinese right before he wrote 1421. I'll bet it's some type of a geopolitical bend that he has. But then I read 1421 and I realized how meticulous you are about detail and evidence and your ability to share your journey is so exciting. Then I read 1434, and I felt a huge addition to 1421. Now that I've read The Lost Empire of Atlantis, I'm so excited because I realize most of us have completely inaccurate information about the Bronze Age. We have a lot of inaccurate information about what was Atlantis. When we say Atlantis, what are we referring to? And the fact that you detail out in the book that this is a bustling, incredible trading empire, that it's not even what we thought it was. I want you to share what motivated you to write the book. How did you get inspired to write this book? Well, Kim, it was a complete accident. Um, when I was young, Atlantis was uh, a subject for lunatics and cranks, crackpots. And I never thought I'd write a book about Atlantis. But just to explain how it came out, um, I published 1421 in 2002, and my, my publisher then, Transworld, said we must set up a, a website, which we did, uh, gavinmenses.net. And we've had a, an enormous volume of emails. About 2,000 people every day go to the website. And... The, they criticize and suggest new ideas, and it's incredibly valuable to me. And I very, take a lot of trouble to try and answer people's questions. Now, one of the most persistent criticisms was that I'd been too simplistic in 1421, that, yes, Zhong He did uh, sail to the Americas and all around the world 70 years before Columbus, but he was but the last of a whole string of Chinese explorers who had been going backwards and forwards to the Americas for hundreds, if not thousands of years, I decided it would be sensible to try and either uh, validate this or knock it out. So I and 14 friends went to Central America to see if we could find evidence of Chinese voyages to the Americas 
for the last several hundred years or indeed millennia. And we did just that back in 2008. And we traveled all over Central America. We found a huge amount of evidence that Chinese had been going backwards and forwards between China and America. I came back to London in uh, October 2008, and I decided I'd write all this up for a new book. And I worked like a dog, and I got very, very tired. And by uh, the week before Christmas, I was really exhausted. And Marcella suggested we go to Crete, where we'd been 40 years ago. And we'd spend Christmas in a monastery, and we'd go to lots of masses and drink plenty of vino and go for long walks. And we'd forget all about uh, crises and writing books and emails and God knows what. So we did just that. We took ourselves off to Crete. And whilst we were there, on one of these long walks, we, we went down to the southern shore of Crete, and we came across a very, very old and extremely beautiful palace, a place called Thaistos. And it was a lovely building, built out of white marble, huge. It was bigger than Charlemagne's palaces thousands of years earlier. And uh, it was much, even bigger than Buckingham Palace. And we were completely mystified at the scale and size of this palace. And we asked the guide, when was it built? And he said, uh, two and a half thousand years before Christ. And I was absolutely astounded at this. I said, well, you can't, you can't have a building this old. It must be the world's oldest building. And he said, well, we can be sure of the date because the Egyptian pharaoh's tombs have paintings of people coming from here, from Phaistos, to Egypt to bring gifts for the pharaohs. And the, the pharaoh's tombs can be very accurately dated. So we can show paintings inside the tombs accurately dated, we can say for sure that uh, people from Phaistos and Southern Crete sailed across the Mediterranean to Egypt and back again. And the thing that really captivated me, as I'd been a, um, a sailor and a navigator for many years, was how on earth did they navigate back again? Because they sailed to Egypt, then they got back to Crete. They're out in the ocean, miles away from land, so how did they know where they were and how to reach Crete? And this is a puzzling enigma for me. So we, we thought, well, we're going to have a look at the museums in Crete, and we'll see if there, is, there are any details of, of how they did it. And we went to Heraklion Museum, capital of Crete, and we found quite a lot of ceramics and medals showing paintings of ships, and they could be dated by the ceramics to 3000 B.C., and the ships which were painted on these ceramics in 3000 BC had masts and rigging and they were pretty sophisticated. And so this was another absolute bombshell to think there were ships in 3000 BC, 5000 years ago, sailing to Egypt and back again to Crete. Well, I was really hooked by then, so we thought can we find details of these ships? And we started off going to Athens, and we found yet more ceramics. But no, no wrecks, no real positive proof. So I thought, well, why is this? And we asked a lot of people, a lot of people in the museums, why there were no wrecks we could see to validate this extraordinary apparent phenomenon. And um, we were told that the reason was that there'd been the most terrible explosion, volcanic eruption, on an island uh, called Fira, which is now called Santorini, uh, which is about 70 miles north of Crete. And this 
uh, eruption in 1450 BC had thrown colossal quantities of magma and volcanic muck into the air, and it had blotted out the uh, the uh, sun for several months, and it had dumped all this volcanic ash and muck not only on Santorini but on Crete itself. And accompanying this volcanic eruption, there was a huge tsunami which smashed into Crete and destroyed all the towns along the northern shore of Crete and the ships that were there at the time. So that was why there were no wrecks we could find. So what we decided to do is to get a ferry to Santorini to see if we could find any evidence there where the actual eruption had started. And uh, we went to this island uh, ferry and we went to the museum and, and we learned something really astonishing that uh, some professors who were based on this island of Santorini had decided they would try and excavate down into the volcanic tephra, which had been left by this volcanic eruption, to see if they could find the old capital of the island. And by chance and good luck, they dug down in the south of the island, a place called Aquatiri, and they went through the uh, volcanic mark uh, for about uh, 20 feet, and they came across a house of a wealthy seafarer, which we christened the Admiral's House. Now, this house was one of many in the old town, and by amazing freak, they bored through uh, into the Admiral's House, and they entered, but they came down vertically in their excavations, and they found they were in the drawing room of this Admiral. Now, the extraordinary thing was that Around the walls of this drawing room, there was a beautiful fresco, and this fresco showed a fleet of ships returning from unknown destination back to the island of uh, Santorini, or Fera, as it was then called. And the, these could be dated, these paintings, because uh, the, the island was buried in 1450 BC, so the Admiral's house was buried as well, and therefore, the, the paintings must have been before 1450 BC. Now, there were 12 ships shown in this convoy returning, and they had uh, remarkably uh, advanced rigging so that the, the sails could be adjusted in all sorts of ways if you were sailing into the wind, before the wind, in little wind or high wind or no wind. So there were all sorts of, there were 12 ropes which it could adjust the sails. And the ships had a very advanced hull design. And we could see from the number of sailors on board that they were big. They were about 140 foot long, uh, about three times the size of Columbus's ships. Now, this was absolutely amazing to me. Here we have uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, 3,000 years before Columbus set sail for the Americas, we have ocean-going ships um, drawn in great detail uh, in this drawing room of an admiral in uh, Santorini. So the next thing we put our minds to was to try and find wrecks of these ships. And we were told there were three wrecks about 200 miles to the east of Santorini, uh, a place called Bodrum in Turkey on the Turkish coast. One of the wrecks had been dated 1600 BC, another 1300 BC, and a third 1100 BC. So as you can guess, by now we were really excited and we scurried off to, to Bodrum to look at these ships. 
and they've been brought up from the ocean bottom and put in a museum uh, in Bodrum Harbour. Now, the interesting thing is that these three ships were carrying copper, and the copper had interacted with the seawater, uh, and it had preserved the hull. It had stopped the beetles uh, boring through the hull and destroying the hull. So you had more or less perfect chunks of hull uh, of these three ships, or to be strictly accurate, of two of the three. Well, the, the, the um, result of great chunks of, of hull being, being well-preserved, one of the results was that the sea currents hadn't uh, washed away the, the goods which were in the holds of these ships. So in other words, what was in the holds was what they were carrying when they sank, and it had been there for three and a half thousand years. Now, this got more and more interesting because in the hull of this ship, the Uluburan wreck, there were goods from six different continents. There was um, African uh, elephant, sorry, there was hippopotamus uh, teeth from Africa, there was elephant tusks from India, there was uh, gold jewelry from Egypt, there was glass beads from Asia, there was uh, amber from the Baltic, um, and copper from an unknown source, which I'll come to in a moment. So one of the things we decided to do was to go to the various places from whence these goods came. So we, we would go to Africa and India and so on. And we, got, we decided we would try and find out if there was corroborative evidence. For example, the ships that brought amber from the Baltic, uh, was there any evidence in the Baltic that Minoan ships had visited there before 1500 BC? And we found there was. There was a distinguished uh, man called Hans-Peter Dewar, who was the director of the Max Planck Institute, who had uh, taken his family to, for a seaside holiday to the place from whence the amber came. And there he'd found, uh, in, in the debris of a very old town called Rungholt, uh, huge um, Minoan storage jars, which were far too big to have come by horse or, or camel or whatever. They were obviously carried by a ship. And he had these dated, and they were 1500 BC. And he, he could say for certain that the Minoans had been trading with the Baltic, which means they had to go into the Atlantic and up through the English Channel. It's a 6,000-mile round trip uh, in 1500 BC. We did the same in India. We went to find out if there was any evidence of uh, trading in, in the places where the Minoans took the elephant tusks. Well, we found to our astonishment that two emeritus professors, John Sorensen and emeritus professor Carl Johannesson, had written books about trade between uh, India and the Americas in 2000 to, to 3000 BC. Now, the reason they, they, they'd written these books was that the mummies buried, uh, the pharaoh's mummies buried in their tombs beside the pyramids, um, in the, the stomach of the uh, Egyptian mummies, there was tobacco and coca. So this tobacco 
which only comes from America, and cocoa, which again only comes from America, he could say that the, 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 the uh, mummy, the Egyptian pharaohs, had been taking tobacco and this drug uh, from coca in substantial quantities. Well, tobacco and coca are unique were then unique to the Americas. So somebody had traded uh, from the Americas to Egypt uh, to satisfy the pharaohs' demands for medicine. How did you verify that tobacco and cocoa were unique to the Americas back then? Just for the audience to have a context. Yes. Well, that has never been, that's always been accepted. No serious botanist or uh, professor of any sort has ever challenged that. They accepted that tobacco in those days was unique to the Americas, and so was coca. Okay. Now, Sorensen and Johannesson had been, their work had been, I won't say vilified, but people tried to cast doubt on it. Um, but there was even more evidence that they'd found. They found carvings on Indian temples uh, going back to 2000 BC, which showed uh, sweet corn, maize, which again is a, is a unique American plant, Doesn't, was not found in Europe at all in 2000 or 3000 BC. So they can show that, that although it was unique to the Americas, it, nonetheless it appeared on these carvings on Indian temples. So there was corn coming as well as coca and as well as uh, tobacco. Now, in the reverse direction, in uh, middens, that is, uh, garbage heaps, very, very old garbage heaps in America, dating back to 1500 BC, there was uh, Egyptian... Uh, cotton and Indian cotton. Now, Egyptian and Indian cotton has different chromosomes to American cotton. So they could say again, uh, they date this from the, from the uh, rubbish pits in America. They could say that in the reverse direction, Egyptian and Indian cotton had been taken from uh, Egypt and India to the Americas. Well, by now I was absolutely hooked. So I decided that we have to go to America to see uh, for ourselves uh, what, what, what the situation was. Now, American children were taught until quite recently that the copper of the Great Lakes was of a great purity. It was 99.9% .9 pure, the purest copper in the world. And we were told that huge quantities of this copper had been mined from uh, very old mines, 2000 to 3000 BC, around the Great Lakes, in particular um, near the Keweenaw Peninsula and the uh, Ile Royale. Well, we went to various museums in America and we found uh, pho photographs and examples of the uh, implements which the miners had used. Now, the really interesting thing was that the copper which was mined in these very, very old mines had simply disappeared. If you added together every bit of copper implement and artifact and jewelry and so on found in America made from copper taken from these mines, it would be less than 1% of the amount that, that was mined. So 99% of this copper had quite simply vanished. Well, 
from then on, I was determined to see everywhere where caches, hordes of copper and bronze implements um, had been found using um, American copper from the mines around the Great Lakes. And of course, the, my first port of call was returned to, to Turkey to go to the Uluburan wreck, see if there was any analysis of the copper which had been found in this wreck sitting on the sea bottom uh, since 1400 or 1600 BC. And we found there were uh, analysis of this copper and a small proportion of the ingots found did have this unique purity of 99.9%. There were about 340 ingots in the ship which sank, of which about 10 had this copper of enormous purity. So I could say for sure that, in my opinion, the Minoans sailed from Crete uh, and Egypt and India through the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic to North America. And really, the evidence we found from Great Lakes mines uh, to um, right across the world to India, which it straddles jolly nearly half the world, there was evidence of this Minoan civilization. Now, I had the most enormous stroke of luck because... I, I sold the rights, the literary rights, to my book, The Lost Empire of Atlantis, to Orion. And Orion issued a press release uh, in April 2010 that they bought these rights and they were going to publish a book um, about, about the, <coughs> my discoveries. And the Greek television picked this up and they invited me uh, to go and be interviewed on the television, national television, which, of course, I agreed to do. And unknown to me, uh, on that program, was a professor, Sokritsis, who was a Greek mathematician, professor of mathematics, and he had spent 20 years <coughs> uh, trying to decipher the language the Minoans used uh, all those years ago, which is called Linear A. Now, Minoan Linear A is the sort of holy grail of unsolved languages. And he managed to break the code and translate it. And he emailed me. He'd never heard of me, never seen me before this TV interview. He emailed me saying he could say for sure that the Minoans had visited um, Greenland. Uh, they'd, they'd visited northwest Scotland, uh, traded across the Mediterranean. They'd visited India. And all the places I'd said in my book where, where they traded, he'd found corroborative evidence. And he had been at this for 20 years. Yeah. This was his life's work, basically. Yes, basically, exactly that. And it, it, where, where he found linear A, it coincided with, with where I said the Minoans had gone. So I say that this couldn't be a coincidence. If there were one or two places, yes. But there were nine places which right across the world where he... Linear A has been found, where um, which is translated, where the Minoans traded. So, in, in effect, we found that this trading empire, the Minoans, which stretched from the Great Lakes of America to the islands, to northwest Scotland, to southwest England, northwest France, southwest Spain, southwest Portugal, the Baltic, right across the Mediterranean, Middle East through Egypt to India. It was really an amazing empire, and Sokritsis could fill in all sorts of gaps 
for the audience, frame the geography of Atlantis. What is yeah. Atlantis? Because I think we need to have a handle on this. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, at this stage, I hadn't realized that the Minoans were Atlantis. I just investigated their story, their history, and the trade and travels. And I found, with the help of Professor Secretsis, that they were a truly remarkable people. They, across this vast empire, which, as I say, was nearly half the world, from Great Lakes to India, they had a common system of measurement. Uh, they had a Minoan foot. They had a common system of weights and measures. They were expert mathematicians. They were far in advance of the later Greeks who came after them. They were expert at astronomy. And above all, they were peaceful and noble people. And, for example, their taxation system, which Sigritsis had found out about, they, they took... Or People paid taxes according to their means, and they received uh, taxation rebates according to their need. Um, so they, were, they foreshadowed Greek democracy uh, and civilization. They were wonderful musicians. They superb artists. To take an example of their, the women, uh, they had very elegant dresses, the women, they had strapless bras, they wore high heels, they had all sorts of perfumes, they had beautiful jewelry made of bronze and, and copper and gold and silver and pearls. They could make wine uh, and beer, um, and they had their houses were four stories high, and they had um, trans translucent windows, and they had separate hot and cold water systems. They had flushing toilets. It, you know, it's just a very, very modern society. So they had fresh running water as well and hot and cold and AC and bathtubs and Absolutely. fountains. Absolutely, exactly that. And um, they went in for animal husbandry and breeding. They refined the uh, breeding of goats to make the meat taste better and, and so on. And they... they um, had all sorts of vegetables and fruits, and their general way of life was really very sophisticated. Now, what I uh, up until uh, about a year ago, I hadn't realised that everything that the Minoans did uh, could be attributed to Plato's story. Now, Plato, as you know, wrote two. Well, I wouldn't say they were books, but two pamphlets. Um, of which the most best known is called Critias. And he described, he's the only person who described the story of Atlantis. And essentially, what he describes is, is exactly um, what, the, what the Minoans had. Now, he says in Critias and Timaeus that it's a true story. And it's a true story about a very advanced people who were uh, literate, they had a written language, and they lived on islands. Now, the only islands in those days that were literate were Crete and uh, Thera. Uh, there were literate peoples in Mesopotamia and in Egypt with a written language, but they weren't islands. So the only place uh, that satisfied 
Plato's description was Crete and um, Thera. Now, he says that the, these people, the Atlanteans, were very sophisticated and they were traders in metal. And they had seagoing ships and their wealth came from international trade in metals, which is, again, the only people in the world who had ships and traded in metal in those days were Minoans from Crete and Thera. He says that they got greedy and um, they decided they would invade the uh, uh, Mediterranean and they would conquer Greece. And that is exactly what happened with the Minoans. They sadly did get greedy. And then Plato says they, the gods took re revenge and they decided to destroy this uh, civilization. And they did so in a terrible day and night of, of violent tempests and storms and the sea was turned into mud and a huge tsunami destroyed their civilization, exactly what happened when the center of Santorini was blown apart by this colossal volcanic eruption in 1450 BC. He says that the Minoans held sway over Western Europe, the Eastern Mediterranean, North Africa, which is exactly what the Minoans did. They had colonies right across the Mediterranean and in North Africa and in West Europe, notably in southwest Spain. Plato says they had the cult of, a bull, of the bull, and that's exactly what the uh, Minoans had. They kept bulls in their ships. They transported them to Spain and various islands in the uh, Mediterranean. And they had a, a bull dance, a very, very risky, advanced dance in which they leapt over the bull's horns, running straight at the bull's horns, and they leapt onto them and onto the bull's back. He says that uh, Plato says they had beautiful houses of five stories with translucent roofs, which again fitted exactly what the Minoans had. They had hot and cold water, flushing toilets, and so on. So he describes their living exactly. And then he goes on to, Plato goes on to describe the Minoans' port. And he uh, describes ships and subterranean harbors and walls of the breakwaters being built of uh, stone, which exactly fits what's on the uh, Thera fresco. So you can look at the fresco and then read Plato's description um, of, of what he's written, and it's all there. He, uh, amazingly, he, Plato says that they had elephants on the, the islands, which were formed the basis of their empire. Now, I thought that start with, this is absolutely ridiculous. You can't have elephants in Mediterranean islands. It's absolutely absurd. So he, he must have been wrong. But I, I looked, went into it and I found to my complete amazement that in fact all these islands uh, did have dwarf elephants 2,500 years ago. And uh, you can see the skeletons of these dwarf elephants in, in museums today. So it's absolutely true. So Really, everything that, that uh, Plato described can be attributed to Minoans. And where I think in the past people have got fixated is the Atlantic side of Plato's story. He says that beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which is the, the Straits of Gibraltar, um, there was a Minoan, <clears throat> sorry, an Atlantean uh, base. And, and this is exactly what there was. There was the people, the Minoans who mined the copper in the Great Lakes, 
had to have houses for their workers, which they built, and, and you can see the ruins today. So essentially, uh, and then Plato describes once again the islands where the, the uh, Lancis people lived, and he describes a round island, which is Santorini, 12 miles across, which is exactly the right width, with um, its center, uh, Great Harbor, which is exactly what, what there is. And he also describes a second uh, metropolis, uh, which is a rectangular island, um, which is Crete. And this rectangular island had uh, all sorts of um, perfume, flowers, uh, vegetables and fruit. And again, everything he des describes this metropolis island having uh, is to be found in, in Crete. So I say that the whole story is true, uh, that the Atlantis was in fact an empire of islands and trading outposts which uh, stretched from North America, the Great Lakes mines, all the way across the Atlantic across the Mediterranean to India um, and it was just as, as Plato described it a very advanced civilized society um, who until they got greedy and decided to attack Greece were a formidable people and because of their greed the gods decided to destroy them there's a lot of emphasis on trying to figure out where Atlantis was and what you're saying here is it's a series of islands that represent a trading outpost and an empire. Then it's not really in one particular place, right? It had, it had absolutely exactly that. It had its center and metropolis on the islands of Crete and Santorini. Okay. And it had outposts in Egypt, India, the Middle East, Mesopotamia, right across the Mediterranean, southwest Spain, northwest France, Orkney Islands, southwest Britain, Stonehenge and, of course, the Great Lakes itself. I really want to bring in the Bronze Age for a moment yeah. because throughout the Lost Empire of Atlantis, it feels like you clarify again and again that there's a major misperception with the Bronze Age yes. and that this is a missing piece, that there was economy, there was trade, there was security, there was military. Yeah. Talk about it for just a moment so we have a full breath of this. Well, the Bronze Age was based on bronze. Bronze is an amalgam of copper and tin, 90% copper, 10% tin, or perhaps 88% and 12%. And now these two substances were, or metals were, were not found in the same place. Um, there is very, very little copper in the Mediterranean, virtually none in Egypt, not much in India. And there, is, there was tin for a short while, a place called Kultepe in modern Turkey. Um, but that got used up. And after that, uh, that was used up, the tin at Kultepe, you had to go outside the Mediterranean to get tin, which in fact was found in, in southwest England on Dartmoor. Now, the advantage of bronze is it's easy to make the metal by simply pouring in tin and copper. And once you've made it, it's very easy to cast, and, and it can be turned into very efficient saws, axes, weapons and so on. So once you've got the ability to make bronze, you can make uh, saws to cut planks to, make, to build ships. You can use it for spades and shovels to dig the ore out of the ground. You're home and dry. You are the world's most uh, le leading civilization. 
So the, the ability to make bronze and carry the, the components of bronze across the world, which the Minoans had, put them in an absolutely unrivaled position. Because to take Egypt, to, bu to build the pyramids, Egypt needed very, very hard saws to cut the stone, which before bronze was made, there were, there were no saws. So the Egyptian pyramids, in fact, were a derivative of the Minoan Empire. Wow, that's a big statement. Now, I think you should qualify this, that you have a great love. One of your greatest loves is Egypt, and you've been there many, many times. That's correct, yes. I have. I've been to Egypt many, many times. Um, I've been to the mud pyramids, Saqqara, and to the uh, more famous uh, pyramids in on the plateau beside Cairo. Um, and building these pyramids was a simply gigantic achievement. They had huge blocks of stone, each weighed about 40 tons, uh, very accurately cut. Um, and again, they could not cut it without these saws. So they needed a, a wholesale uh, supply of thousands and thousands of saws. Now, the, the trade, therefore, the Minoans brought to Egypt was they brought bronze and they brought from America uh, tobacco and coca and they took to America in exchange cotton. So... The Bronze Age in Egypt was very much dependent on uh, on the Minoans. Now, you can see right the way through, bronze doesn't rust. Tin, um, iron rusts, and therefore there aren't many Iron Age uh, hordes of weapons and equipment and so on. Whereas bronze does not rust, and, and it stays buried in the ground. It remains in pretty good nick for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So the Bronze Age hordes, which were found, which have been found right across the Minoan Empire, show that they, bronze was the absolute key to wealth. Uh, they made offensive and defensive weapons with bronze, so they had sh shops, uh, swords and daggers, and arrowheads. Now, you're still talking about the Minoans as you're talking the Minoans, about the bronze. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, they had beautiful jewelry. They had kitchen equipment made out of bronze, uh, ladles, knives, saucepans, frying pans, and more or less sort of standardized kit for, for kitchen, which is found all over the, 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 the Minoan Empire. Um, they had tools for cutting wood for, and for farming, spades, harrows, sieves and rakes, and so on. And they had a lot of bronze jewelry, which is very, can be made very thin and very easily malleable and so on. So what was the misperception about the Bronze Age? Well, I've done very little original work, and I've used the, the uh, research of very distinguished professors who are much cleverer and more experienced than I am. I don't think people have put down carefully and analyzed where did the copper come from and where did the tin come from? And can you establish by the impurities in the copper exactly where it did come from? The answer is, I think, in this case, yes, you can. You know what? I used to think when I asked questions, I got myself in adventurous trouble, if you know what I mean. But when yeah. you ask questions, look out. Everybody should duck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're sweet to 
Thank you. <laughs> it's true. You and your wife have also, I want to tell you throughout the book, I love it that you travel together, that you're on this journey together. She's really involved with you in this. It's so yeah. incredible. Well, it was the most enormous fun. I mean, we it was very, very tiring at times, but it really did get incredibly exciting. Because you re- After once about three quarters of the way through the book, I found that new things would just turn up. For example, I'll give you an example, the design of razors to shave. Now, uh, it was the, it's very important to, to the Minoans and their satellite peoples that they could shave properly. And so you find uh, bronze razors all the way from the Great Lakes of America uh, across this empire to India, um, almost exactly the, the same design everywhere you look. If you go to Stonehenge, look in the graves in Stonehenge, there are these razors. If you go to <coughs> southwest Spain, there are the razors, uh, and so on. So new things kept coming up, and about the last was, was the elephants. I just couldn't believe that there were really these dwarf elephants in Mediterranean islands, just as Plato described. You mean they were brought there? Yeah, they were brought. They must have been, because strangely, elephants can swim. They're, they're sluggish swimmers and it takes a lot out of them but only for short distances so they could have swum from the mainland to uh, some of the islands near the Turkish coast but they couldn't possibly have swum to Cyprus now these elephant skeletons have been found and dated 2000 BC in Cyprus so the elephants in Cyprus must have been on board these ships these known ships and therefore they uh, must have been tame because you can't have wild elephants rampaging around in a ship. <laughs> and that's, that's Unless they're looking what, for your book. That's exactly what I think that's the say. only way we could see that. <laughs> yeah. <It's> amazing. <laughs> you talk about a long-standing trade relationship between Crete and Egypt between 1991 B.C. and 1400 B.C. Yes. How do we know that? I know you mentioned it in the book, but I want you to say it on the show. Well, because you can tell that there was indeed that trading relationship because inside the pharaoh's tombs, Egypt has a very well-chronicled history. So everyone knows the date of each particular pharaoh. There's no argument about that. So you can date the tombs uh, of each pharaoh very accurately, and therefore you can date the painting very accurately. And the painting shows the Minoans bringing their gifts to the pharaohs from Crete and returning. Gavin, how do you think that the ancient Egyptians built the pyramid? In other words, you just explained how they cut the stone. But how did they carry those tons and tons of materials to make the pyramids? How were they transported, do you think? I don't know, really. Um, By, I suppose, tree trunks, uh, straight tree trunks from the bark peeled off which they used as rollers, but I, I really don't know. I've often wondered about that. Yeah. You also talk about that the Minoans had invented writing, and you said the Egyptians and the Sumerians were not there before. Explain that. I thought that was really well, provocative. Well, the, the, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians had writing. Right. I was, I was talking in the context of Plato describing a literate state based on these islands. Okay. The Mesopotamians 
and the Egyptians and the Minoans were literate, all three of them, but the only ones who were based on islands were the Minoans, the Mesopotamians and, and Egyptians were, of course, land-based civilizations. My note was that you said the Minoans had invented writing. Professor Sikritsis will... We're going to write a joint book about his, his deciphering of Linear A. And in that, I think he will say how he's decided the date of Linear A compared to Linear B. Okay. Talk about the seals. The seals had inscriptions of Orion and the stars and stellar yeah. constellations. Talk about well, what these seals were on the ships. There have been about 6,000 seals found at the Palace of Phaistos, which started off our adventure. Now, these seals were used uh, by merchants to uh, secure their goods. For example, this ship, the Uluburan ship, which was wrecked, was carrying a priceless load of copper and tin, which could make enough bronze to, to arm a, an entire army. Hundreds of thousands of people could be hitted out with what was, this Uluburan ship was carrying. Now, if there was no way of securing the goods on board, the captain of the ship could just say, well, I'm going to sell this and pocket the, pocket the money. Now, the way it was secured was that, that they had chests which they locked and they sealed the lock with a seal made of wax or some soft, soft material which then was imprinted with, with the personal insignia in one way or another of the people who owned what they were locking up. So, and, and the seals then became, how would I put it, they became attributed to certain people. Certain wealthy merchants um, had seals which showed ships. Now, funny enough, the ship, seals that showed ships go back to 3000 BC, and they show sophisticated sailing ships with um, quite advanced rigging. So you can tell from those seals, which have been dated, that... The, the Minoans and Atlanteans did have ships 5,000 years ago which could sail, which pushes back the, the general view of maritime trade by about 1,000 years. So seals were an integral part of... Um, the timeline. To, to, ...to enable people to trade in safety, in that they could stop their goods being stolen. Were the seals also part of verifying any timelines? Yes, they were. Um, the, 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 of the 6,000 found at the Palace of Phaistos, uh, I think about a third have been dated. And I don't think the dating has been challenged, so they can, you can say for sure that they had seals in 3000 B.C. I cannot even imagine what you're sitting on, the implications, the synthesis of knowledge that you carry. Kim, it's very kind of you to say so. I, basically, I'd like to pay tribute to who's made it possible, which is certainly not me, in that we have this amazing website, uh, GavinMenzies.net, which Ian Hudson, my colleague, has built up with, with um, Pedalo, the website designers, over the years, and as I say, we have around 2,000 people a day at, at its peak who come to the website, 
Now, this is a continuous, priceless source of knowledge. We print out everything that's of interest, and we've got 1,900 lever-arch files of evidence, which has come to us in the past, since 2002, when my first book was published. And people criticize and suggest new things. But above all, we try and thank everyone who comes with evidence and record it and make use of it and push it back out to people. So it's an, this Google and website and so on and so forth is an incredibly important new tool for historians to use. And I think if I had to criticize professional historians, they're terribly slow in realizing what a revolution has been brought by having this amazing uh, power of receiving and collating evidence at your disposal. When we did a show last year on peer review, yeah, one of the things that was so exciting to me was that to understand the inner workings of peer review, and not to go through that again, everybody should listen to that show on peer review. It's a blockbuster. Well, well I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, I think peer review for historians, it might be necessary for physics or chemists or botanists or whatever, but for historians, it is an absolute catastrophe because peer review enables the most conservative people to squash any new ideas that they don't like. So they can create their own little patch of history, uh, you know, say between 1400 AD and 1410 AD. The expert uh, will not allow anyone to come onto his patch and trample around. Well, that just doesn't is not conducive to, to historical research. Nor is it conducive to the true realm of discovery. No, absolutely not. I quite agree with you. You know, it really does stifle uh, new ideas. And I think the peer review has got to be scrapped. It's a disaster. One of the things I also really appreciated was that in your discoveries of the lost empire of Atlantis, that you were even willing to be wrong. 1421, most of that evidence is true, but you just brought more information, which changes things a bit, doesn't it? It does, yes. Uh, talk about that. I want you to talk about that because yes. one of the things in revisionist history that people have to really get in their gut is that you have to be willing to be either wrong or yes. with the advent of new knowledge and new discoveries, there's yes. a recontextualization, new timelines come in, Yes. so you can't be tied up with having to be right about everything. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. Um I must say, when I found out in Christmas 2008 that there were people who were sailing the oceans long before the Chinese, it really took me aback. And I'm, I confess that for a while I thought, well, this is going to do me a lot of damage. You know, do I really want to go ahead with this book? And then I thought, well, it's true. The information's there. It's bound to come out sooner or later, so I better bite the bullet and get it published. It doesn't destroy the context of 1421 because 1421 was like a frame of reference, like, wait a minute, there were people before Columbus. But really the context is there were people before people and there were people before them. And it's all about the new timeline and new knowledge coming into the situation. So you've established a frame of reference. Columbus did not discover America. But maybe we end up finding out that before the Atlanteans, before the Minoans, 
There was a group. It's a really fundamental thing one's got to take on board. You're quite right. One's got to accept one's wrong about certain things and right about other things. And we're all on a process of discovery, really. Uh, If you take, for example, the, the determination of longitude, which is a very important matter for a seaman, can you also give the context of your background as a navigator yourself, if you could? I, I was a navigator of a submarine or captain of a submarine for seven or eight years. And obviously one had to know how to navigate one's way around. Well, in those days, we, we in the first submarines I was in, we didn't have uh, satellites. Satellites have revolutionized navigation, of course. So we had to work out where we were by the stars and the sun. And so I spent about four years doing that. And so one learned all different ways of calculating longitude um, by using the moon, uh, meridian passage of the moon, by using stars, and so on. I found out when writing 1421 that the Chinese had discovered how to use longitude in the 13th century A.D., Kublai Khan, astronomer Guo Shujing, had worked out how to calculate longitude, which would enable Chinese ships to sail from China to America and back again. Now, the Mesopotamians and I think the Minoans could use eclipses of the moon to calculate their longitude, and that, that in my view, is what Stonehenge was. It was an artificial horizon of uh, horizontal stones from which, standing in the middle, they could see 360 degrees, and and they could note uh, when the moon eclipsed, and they could calculate longitude accordingly. You said that Copernicus did not discover that the Earth and the planets revolve around the sun, that the Babylonians did with stargazing. Talk about that. Well, there there are drawings of the sun and the planets, which show that in, I think, I've forgotten the exact date, about 1600 B.C., um, the true way in which the solar system works was, was actually inscribed by these astronomers. They, they knew back in 1600 BC that the um, Earth was a planet uh, circling the sun, as were other planets. So much of what we've learned as being solid in history is up for yes. grabs. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that, that uh, I'm afraid is true. And you can rest assured that my book, The Lost Empire of Atlantis, will in no way describe the first voyages to America. There were people who, one can say for sure, went, sailed from the Eastern Mediterranean to the Americas in big numbers 6,000 years before the Minoans did. Now, how do we know that? Because DNA, of the huge advances of genetics and DNA and there's a very well-regarded study um, which shows that people around, American people who live around the Great Lakes have a haplogroup uh, DNA. Explain what a haplogroup is to people. Well, a person's DNA can be used to describe a person's parentage. Now, until recently it was thought that America was populated by peoples who had uh, a certain type of DNA called A and B and C and D, and that was it. 
So they were unique, uh, and the argument was used to say they came across the frozen Bering Straits. Well, now, recently, there's been a four, sorry, a fifth haplogroup called X-ray 2, which is found where the Minoans originated from, that's eastern Anatolia, where they settled, that's Crete and Vera and the islands in the Mediterranean, where they traded, that's uh, the Orkney Islands and the Americas, and nowhere else. So you can see this is a fingerprint of the Minoans in their empire, trading empire. Uh, Now, the interesting thing is that that there's this X-ray 2A uh, haplogroup has been found in substantial numbers by people who who ended up in the Americas from eastern Mediterranean 6,000 years before the Minoans. So I'm absolutely sure that there were people <laughs> voyages 6,000 years before the Minoans to the Americas. And I think that it'll go on further and further back, and very soon somebody will come up and write a book about people who sailed from the eastern Mediterranean to the Americas in big numbers, 40,000 B.C. We push back the frontiers of knowledge, and we find the people were a hell of a lot cleverer uh, than we give them credit for thousands of years ago. To what extent does the historical bend of someone doing DNA evidence testing come into play? Do you think that the discipline is completely integrous and clean? Is there political bent? What's your take on it? Certainly not a political bent, I think. You um, think it's pretty pure? I, I think so, yes. Okay. Should I say that there are some geneticists who are pretty timid, for example... Uh, there's, a, there's a people who have been, a cemetery been found in a bog in Florida. And the people there have this distinct, have a very distinctive European haplogroup DNA. And there's a lot of skeletons, and, and they've been dated for, I can't remember how long ago, but a hell of a long time ago. Now, the, person, the geneticist who found this was lent on by scholars and inverted commas who said, you know, it must have been contaminated. You couldn't sail from uh, Europe to the Americas all that long ago. So he said, well, yes, maybe it was contaminated. But I think he should have stuck to his guns. There's a lot of pressure on people in this area. There's a lot of pressure on people. And that's where I'm so incredibly lucky because, to be quite honest, I don't give a stuff what, um, you know, what the so-called experts say about my, my work, I, I, the readers are what count in my view. Um, so if they get worked up, readers get worked up and say this is rubbish, then I take it very seriously. You also shared like a tidbit about Napoleon and how he died, that he was poisoned with arsenic from the wallpaper in his prison. Yes. And arsenic has come up a few times with copper. Was it copper? Yes. Talk that's, about that's that. I thought that was very interesting. It's a little tidbit, but it was kind of interesting. Well, you need to make really good bronze, you need copper about 88% and, and tin about 12%. Uh, there is a way of making bronze, an inferior bronze, without tin, and that's by using arsenical copper. Um, now, the problem about this, which was not found out for a long time, was that the arsenical copper produced fumes of arsenic, and the poor smiths, 
got, got disfigured and died by smelting using arsenical copper. And in fact, the Vulcan and I've forgotten the name of the Greek version, but the, the metallurgists of Greece and Rome were described as being disfigured. So um, it was a really big setback in that these very skilled people who produce this incredibly valuable substance, uh, bronze, died off in the process of making it. And so the search for tin became incredibly important, and that's why the Minoans um, ended up in Cornwall to get the tin. It was like Cornish tin was very pure and very rich, and it was just lying on the surface. They could collect it in those days in, in the beds of streams. They didn't have to mine it even. Okay, talk about the amber. Amber seems to have been highly, highly traded and yes. regarded and yes. protected. Well, amber, nobody disputes that the amber in the Uluburan wreck comes from the Baltic. Everyone accepts it does. Now, amber from the Baltic is, can be very easily identified, and that amber shows up all throughout the Minoan trading empire. For example, the graves at Stonehenge have, have this Baltic amber in big quantities. The Greek graves in Mycenae in Greece have huge quantities of amber jewelry. Um, amber was very, very valuable, very highly regarded. Mohammed said all good Muslims should have their beads of pure amber. And uh, the Roman emperors had special circuses where the successful gladiators would be thrown amber as, as uh, presents if they killed the animals. So um, it's a very, very good finger, fingerprint of, of the, the Minoan Atlantean trading empire. Where you find amber, that's where they were. Where would you find amber today? Same place in the Baltic. It's uh, washed up in the North Sea after a storm. We used to, for example, we, long ago we had a house in the marshes near the coast. And after Christmas lunch, we used to stagger along to the coast, a place called Shingle Street. And we'd find amber every single time washed up from Baltic. You've been so many places, Gavin. You've been to the Syrian border, to Damascus, to Beirut. You've been all over the world. Very lucky. Very, very lucky. I mean, I've had prodigious luck. My first book, nobody would have bothered to read it, I think, 15 years ago, because China was sort of unknown quantity. But the fact that China is, you know, becoming so powerful, people are very interested in ancient Chinese history. So that, I was just spectacularly lucky with my first book. Talk about Catherine Bard and her discovery of this cave in the desert. Yes, well... This is a very, very interesting because Catherine Bard has found a dockyard, buried dockyard in Egypt. And uh, in it, the, there are ropes and pieces of ship, which has been dated to about 2000 BC, approximately. I'm not quite sure of the exact date. But anyway, very, very old. Now, the astonishing thing is that until recently, it was thought the Egyptians uh, couldn't sail on the uh, open ocean because their ships were made of pretty pathetic wood, basically. And uh, she's found, as this is not the case at all, 
Well, the really interesting thing is that Meredith's professor, John Sorensen, and Carl Johannesson have written two huge books in which they describe in great detail dozens and dozens of Egyptian voyages to the Americas with, I think, accompanied by Minoan ships, in my view. So the fact that she's found what appear to be ocean-going ships, or the remains of them, is going to open a whole new Pandora's box about transatlantic voyages thousands and thousands of years ago. So Catherine Barner's big, you know, her discovery is very, very important. One of the things I like about your work is that you honor and acknowledge all the people that are contributing to the body of work, to the projects, and that make up really the discovery teams. It's very generous of you to say so, Kim, but it's self-interest, because if I didn't, I would, the, the flood of new evidence flowing into our computers would disappear. And I hope people accept that I have always tried to acknowledge their work, and therefore they're happy to continue to provide really fascinating evidence. Who are your greatest enemies or opposers? Um, I think there's a, a crackpot in the Far East whose name I've forgotten, but basically uh, I've been accused of being planting evidence where it'll be found, forging maps, um, siphoning off money from the Singapore Tourism Board who didn't produce an exhibition on my book and all sorts of fascinating crimes. But I've never replied to any of these attacks, which you may find rather conceited, but one of the problems I've got is that my books are on sale in over 100 countries, and I only speak one language, English. So if somebody attacks me in, say, Turkish or Chinese, I've got no real way of replying unless I hired interpreters. So I just ignore it. And I think people, what the critics don't understand is that the average man is exceedingly astute, or man or woman, the average reader, and they judge for themselves whether this, this, my evidence is good or not. And I think the overwhelming evidence we get from emails day in, day out, is that by and large, people accept in general what's written in the books. They don't necessarily accept all the details. So I haven't had to really reply to the critics. Have you been invited to speak by universities across the world? Oh, I have, yes. I've been invited to speak at the Library of Congress the great in Washington, D.C., the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, the National Maritime Museum in London, and God knows how many other places across the world and the Royal Geographical Society in London, and universities, Oxford, Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, and so on. So um, people have been very generous to invite me, and I thoroughly enjoyed speaking there. What does Gavin Menzies want to solve next? Well, I'd like to to write one book with my colleague Ian Hudson, uh, which is about voyages long ago to the Americas, and I'd like to write a book with Professor Mina Secretis about Crete as the first civilization in the world. And then I'm going to write, if I'm still alive by then, an old man's book about 
what happened in Europe in 1421, which is just sort of for my own amusement, really. How have you felt that England has received you? To me, the all-important thing is, do the book sell, and it, are the readers convinced? And fortunately, they do sell, and uh, the readers are convinced. So I feel I've been very, very lucky. But I've had fantastic um, publishers. Uh, Transworld published 1421. HarperCollins published 1434. And Orion, who I think are now the largest publisher in the world, part of the Hachette Group, published Lost Empire of Atlantis. And all three have done a really fantastic job, in my view. They give me everything I ask for. And it's been a very, I think publishing is a very honorable business. You don't have to worry about being screwed. Uh, basically, people do what they say they'll do. And uh, it's all based on trust. There isn't that much written down. You know, you're expected to do this, that, and the other. And if you do it, they'll do it. So I really enjoyed 10 years or 14 years now um, that I've been at it with writing. What is Marcella's interest in what's next for her and her and you as well? Because I think being on this journey together, it would be nice to know a little bit about what she's looking forward to as well. Well, we're very, very lucky. We've got two daughters who are happily married. We've got four grandchildren. Um, we don't have a lot of money. There isn't that much money except for very, very few people. But I've my books have sold, I don't know, getting on for two million copies, I think. And I, ha I really haven't made much money out of it all. So it's not a, uh, a business you're in for, for money. But it's been exceptionally interesting. I mean, we can look back on... We've been around the world six times since 1421 was published. And you meet very, very interesting, nice people, learn a hell of a lot. So it's, you know, just there are other things in life than money, basically. But the good thing is it sounds like there's always been the provision to be able to travel, to do the research, and to yes. do the writing. There's been a sufficiency in terms of the provision that's been made available to you that, and that you've true. created, right? It, but that's absolutely true, but it has soaked up a hell of a lot of money. I mean, research, travel, and research for the Lost Empire of Atlantis really did soak up a lot. It would be nice to be able to have that refunded. Because <laughs> really what you've done is you've established a new frame of reference for history. You and the team. Uh, me and the team and the publishers and my agent, my literary agent, Luigi Bonomi, my PR people, Midas, um, it's over a hundred people worked on the book 1421 and uh, each book has been a, t a team effort so all I've tried to do is to be a sort of reasonably conscientious member of the team and get on with it How was the editing for The Lost Empire of Atlantis for you? The editing um, process It was my my writing is very austere and I'm very cautious and conservative, though you mightn't think it. So I wrote a pretty conservative, unreadable book to start with. <laughs> and Gaynor Olsen, who was engaged by Iran, uh, basically helped to restructure the book. So as I say, it is a team effort, and there were lots and lots of people working 
with Iran and myself to, to make it all happen. Were you nervous that the editing would change the way the information yes, was yes, parlayed? Yes. And um, it, that was rather fraught at times, but it's all in the past now, and I'm very happy. You and your team have a way of writing that takes the reader right into the scenario, into the place of antiquity, to that time. There's an ancient feeling to all the writing. Well, thank you very much. Why did the Bronze Age mining cease in Britain, Ireland, and Americas in 1500 B.C.? It all ceased because of the violent eruption which happened in Santorini, this volcano volcano exploded, blew the middle of the island out. Its tsunami smashed the ships to bits, wrecked all the palaces, ended the civilization of the Minoans, or Atlantis, as you want to call it. And therefore, there were no ships going to America. The mines just shut down. There were no ships going to Cornwall. Tin mining shut down, and, and so on. So it all happened quite quickly after this ghastly volcanic eruption. And Gavin, I know that you're very conservative, even though you're really open in the way that you go through your analysis and examination. And I've never asked you this before, so you can take the fifth. (laughs) But do you think that in any way you've had celestial help and guidance, maybe divine guidance in any way, to move you along and to prompt you and to follow your hunches? Well, I'm sure there are lots of things we don't know about, so I don't want to be disparaging about celestial help, but I think I've just been spectacularly lucky in timing, really, and and getting such excellent publishers and such a professional team to help me, to whom I'm indebted. I look forward to meeting you and your wife in London, Gavin. So do I. Very much <laughs> you. So you, you let us know when that's going to be. It's going to be in the next two months. I know. Jolly good. Thank <laughs> you very much for inviting me. I've hugely enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Gavin Menzies, the author of 1421, the year China discovered America, 1434, the year a magnificent Chinese fleet sailed to Italy and ignited the Renaissance, and now the lost empire of Atlantis, history's greatest mystery revealed, but one of the greatest mysteries that's being revealed is the love of learning and the willingness to be wrong and be open to new knowledge. Gavin, thank you so much for representing that. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kim. All the best to you. See you in London for a cup of tea. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Great. It's rain-making time. Thank you, Gavin.